I think. Dude, the first time. Yeah. Oh wait. <laughs> <We're recording. laughs> and uh yeah you, as you can tell uh two crickets and thorn tree is very much in holiday mode that uh, oh, yeah. it is it is still the smoothest glass of amarula for your mind but uh, we're not even able to coordinate on when i click the recording button uh so gabriel was about to say something exciting and and scandalous uh but uh you know now he, now you won't get to hear it it's gonna be like gotta bite my tongue yeah, horrible tease. You know, maybe we should do a, a sort of uncensored version of of two crickets one day. I mean, I know we've had some pretty uh, wild podcasts in the past, but we really could do. I think I think that we need to. Uh, Want to say our jobs and our podcasts are a little bit too closely aligned. <laughs> need... Yes, no, that's true. Uh, maybe if the RR finally decides to uh, put its money to better use and fires us both, then we can do that. <laughs> if we go the way of, of Big Daddy Liberty. Yeah, and we, we strike out on our own as sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, allied but un, untethered uh, agents of liberty and chaos. <laughs> mm. Mm. Of radical centrism. Then, uh, but but until then, we're going to be very good and talk about lots of interesting stuff, even though it's not office politics. Although I want to say, I do feel very Friday afternoon, technically the last day of work. We had our final meeting. We said oh, goodbye. Yeah. So nice. But it's... I know that I'm not going on holiday. <laughs> so yeah, kind of I, I, anxious, I... chilled, anxious, chilled. Yeah, I also, I mean, I don't have nearly as much to do as you do, but I still have to finish all the This Week in Histories that I'm putting in for the year, for the rest of the year. Uh, and I've picked out the topics and things, but uh, oh, haven't done it yet. Did you read mine today? No. That came out today. Because uh, I was in their meeting. Yeah. Uh, it was by Marcus Aurelius and uh, his son, Commodus. Uh Two of those most fascinating of Roman characters, Dude, Marcus Aurelius, one, one of the best the, aphorists of all time. Yes, and uh, his naughty son. Yes, his son who was a bit useless, um, and possibly that was because Marcus had him quite late, and so the young lad was, um, what was the Byzantine phrase to describe it? Uh, it's always difficult to pronounce. Porfulo Henitus, I think it is, something like that. Born in the purple. His son was oh. born while the father spoon. was emperor. Yeah. Uh, it was a special designation that was given to certain imperial heirs. And uh, it becomes more common in the Byzantine period than in the Roman period because Roman emperors tend to either not be related, they get adopted into the imperial family, uh, or they get... Uh, you know, take power by murdering the predecessor, in which case they're not born in the purple. Imperial and, family as in the firm. Yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he, he was 15 when he gets made co-emperor, and one has the, the strong feeling, and this is a pattern that repeats throughout Roman history, that if you get made emperor when you're too young, you're a bit useless. Uh-huh. 
Because it uh, just comes too easy. You don't know. You don't learn how to work for your. Yeah, reward. exactly, exactly. And so you know, you can point to pretty much any of them: Caligula, Nero, uh, uh, Commodus. Um, there was another one the, later called Elagabalus. All of them. Elagabalus. They come, become, a, the naughty list ends with Elagabalus. No, dude, Elagabalus is interesting because he's. He's claimed by he he had this really bad reputation throughout all of history, and now the sort of uh, workista social justice segment of the history profession is trying to rehabilitate him as Rome's first trans emperor. Okay. Because okay. he had he had uh, shall we say a complicated sexual identity. Um, well, Caligula uh, was he, a god, which is ultimate. <laughs> <laughs> sexual identity <laughs> but uh yeah elagopolis was was basically just far more interested in 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 partying and sleeping with with interesting people uh and his mom ran things and uh it ended up i think with both of them being murdered so you know it didn't go that well <laughs> the the chinese totally figured out how to make that work okay yeah strong mothers yeah, figured it out in China. And they had a, a lot of court eunuchs. Interestingly, the later Roman Empire also had a lot of court eunuchs. Um, the Byzantine period, they it was a tradition they definitely adopted. And some of the uh, most stable caliphates. Yes. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's a tradition that goes on in, in the Islamic world basically almost until the modern day. Um, until sort of, you know, the 20th century. They still had eunuchs running around doing things sometimes. One day it's going to be such a meme. Did you know that once upon a time, quote unquote, like eunuch slaves ruled the world? <laughs> oh, like, for a long time. If you, if you if you act as if slavery is just one very simple thing, then you miss out on a lot of the detail. It's you know obviously between here and there, there's 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 some steps to be taken because one still worries very much about those who'd like to underplay it and. The worry sometimes is exaggerated on the old mainstream. For, but anyway, for a time, for a time, the uh, the most powerful of the um, Islamic powers, uh, the Mamluk Sultanate, which is based out of Egypt from sort of the 1300s until the 1500s, till it was destroyed by the Ottomans, was literally run by slave soldiers. They were uh, basically they were they were kind of the loyal puppets of the Sultan beforehand. And then they realized, wait a second, why are we taking orders? <laughs> and they took over, and they they ran their um, they ran Egypt for quite a long time, actually. Mm. Very interesting phenomenon, the slave soldier business. So how does it work? I think it's like slavery turns out in the history of words to generally show up before the word freedom. But not before the word chief or tyrant or commander or, uh, you know, basically someone who has the coercive capacity Look, to deny yeah, someone else freedom or control their freedom. So, so the connection there has be, existed since people hmm. lived in, uh, in, in, in um, sedentary communities. Yeah, since they settled down. Basically, the moment people develop agriculture, slavery develops as well. And that's a, basically a universal constant in every single society everywhere in the world. 
and so then when the slave becomes a soldier so my favorite uh, etymological thing here is which i've said before is that the oldest word for free person which came from a society that had slaves but did the unusual thing of some of them going free was he who can return to his mother and there you have this tragic sense of slavery which is that if you were to be freed what would you do grown adult like you kind of are in an infantile position without yeah, well this is experience this is, without property without connections as a free person exactly uh, and slavery was really a a, a, a phenomenon that very fit in very well with the hierarchical societies we used to have it was just you know most people were actually okay with it why not because they wanted to be slaves or not necessarily because they loved having slaves but just because they thought hey you know this is how it be this you have rungs on the ladder and some people at the bottom and because of this uh this kind of you know really hierarchical structure in like ancient Rome and even up until when American slaves were freed in the US. Um, a freed slave would often just end up working for their their previous uh, owner. Yeah. Because, you know, what else are you going to do? And uh, yeah, it's a hard, well, could you maybe go to mom if you know the village <laughs> that she's in? Well, if you even know where she is, you know, yeah. often you don't if you're a slave. Uh it's it's a it's such a strange it's a strange problem and i think in a way it feels not totally unlike the problem of being a recent university graduate you sort of theoretically have just been upgraded well, I, can of, right? I can think of some differences <laughs> but yes mm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, but I, I get it if you got a bad so, university degree which didn't give you a skill and you're entering a hostile employment market so in other words you're a uh, you're a young south african who just got a degree in uh i don't the know communications generally. or something yeah yeah, yeah. communication uh, too bad yeah, yeah probably better than history <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so you you just you just entered the job market young south african and it it's not great necessarily no, it's not, not easy, and, and and so on on the prestige axis, you've just had a prestige upgrade. In the one case, from being a slave to being a free person; on the other case, from being like mm. a child and a student into being theoretically an employable adult. Uh, and on the property side, you've got zero in both cases. And on the power side, it's it's it is the case. I think that the asymmetries are the greatest, like. Where I, I think often there is such a discomfort uh, around treating slaves. Like, there are these good essays. Bernard Williams, this great uh, British philosopher who spent some time in America at their Ivy Leagues and then uh, did his last 10 years back in the UK because he said, you get to a certain age where you realize how important it is that some people in the audience actually understand your jokes. <laughs> which is kind of the most boss diss against like, American philosophy departments I've ever heard. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. 
But so he had this he had this thing on looking back on slavery where he's like the the philosophically interesting point is exactly the one you said, Nick, which is the ancient Greeks were very unusual for talking about slavery as a problem. <laughs> like even getting to that step was super unusual. And yeah. then once you got they, to that step, the consensus they felt the need, was yeah. They felt the need they had to justify it, right? So some the of the pinch. yeah, yes, uh, some of the, some of the Greek philosophers actually write defenses of slavery, which is not something as I think this is a Thomas R point. You don't have to defend something if it's not at least a little bit under attack. Exactly, and uh, uh, this is why he explains why there was such a enormous body of kind of white supremacist pro-slavery stuff that comes out of the American South is precisely because it's under attack that they need to kind of you know, create this framework of why it's okay. And they, they lean on, on race as a reason to do that. Uh, whereas beforehand yeah. slavery wasn't necessarily connected to race that much at all. And this is why the biological thesis still commands such ways, because you've got this new science that's completely new to the world called biology. It's literally just been codified 20 years ago. The word has become normalized 10 years ago. Departments are popping up. And it's sort of mystical and interesting and weird and sort of like clearly very serious because professors are studying it. And so it's the perfect zone to go, just like New University says today, it's the perfect zone to go to like conceal uh, quite wicked and stupid ideas behind a lot of gobbledygook that's coming from... Clever I've cops. never heard of a university doing that. Man, that sounds, <laughs> <laughs> sounds completely unprecedented. But, but okay, so, so, so the Greeks are weird because they, they try and defend this. And a lot of that weirdness comes, oddly enough, from a more general curiosity. So, for example, Aristotle points out, and I think Herodotus does the same, that like a lot of other societies have this feature in common with the Athenians, which is that slave traders are what we would now call uh, conducting a dirty job. So it's like if someone's in the construction industry and you're in a, and you're in uh, New Jersey, then you're like. Is this mafioso business? Because there's so much of that. Someone's mafioso. <laughs> so it's not illegal. It's legal. It's more like being a, a sort of in charge of the sewerage or refuge collection. Or uh, and uh, if you're uh, closer you, to the coalface, it's for even me. More what is the quintessential of, example of this? Is is nightclubs and strip clubs? Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, so good. There's always something. There's always something that's a bit off about them. There's always this kind of weird connection to crime, even when it's completely legal business, there's yeah. often, you know, human trafficking or like uh, a drug, a drugs or, or some kind of extortion going on in the background, even though it's a legal business. Um, and so Aristotle asked the question, why is that the case here or generally? And is it the same answer? And he can and he says something like, It doesn't make sense that people feel awkward because clearly like a lot of people who a lot of people slaves are like domestic workers or guardians or accountants or whatever. Some of them are musicians, quite sophisticated up and down the chain. Um, 
but they've, you know, you're working very closely with them. It's very intimate and there's actually a lot of trust. So he said this relationship itself can't be disestemious because slave owners aren't getting the stigma. It's slave traders that are. And that fit with his broader theory that there are different kinds of people. And this wasn't a race thing. He sometimes, In fact, he thought one of the great contradictions of society is that within the same family, a true free person might give birth to a, a natural slave. But because of the way that our economy is designed, our, our, our free market works, um, the child's never going to be a slave. And likewise, he was like, some slaves should definitely be free persons. You can tell by their nature. And he thought often they're the ones who get killed because they kind of buck against this. And they're leaders and they take initiative and they're agents. Uh, so he was like, this is an imperfect system. Uh, and, and the traders get in trouble because they are incentivized to go and catch fresh slaves. And that's the moment of evil to him. If there's like a cardinal action moment that's wrong, it's when you capture a slave. And if there's a cardinal ontological or like how things are rather than what you do, like a, a noun versus a verb, evil, it's that some slaves will be born into free homes and some free people will be born into slave uh, lineages. Right, but, but, a... he, but, but then he says, what else can you do? Nothing. So... On a, in a, and he and he kind of invents this like important distinction between moral politics and uh, cosmopolitan morals, which you then see play out again in Machiavelli, where you say, "Look, there are some things which should never happen, but because societies kind of suck, this is the best of all possible worlds." In other words, he makes the same argument for slavery that Winston Churchill does for democracy. He says it's a terrible option, but it's the least bad. <laughs> of all the available <laughs> and i'm not saying that's right but it's like an interesting thing to remember from two and a half thousand years ago of how they saw the world so it's, it's yeah it's, it's quite interesting that you you say that's the catching thing that uh, that aristotle identified because he wasn't i think necessarily having an insight there as he was just writing down something that every that is true in pretty much every society so i'll give you some examples uh, medieval Europe, uh, they're, that's, they're kind of transitioning to the modern period. The Portuguese and the Spanish are kind of getting involved in the slave trade, particularly the Portuguese in West Africa. And uh, the British, or the English at least, aren't involved in the slave trade yet, uh, partly for because they don't actually have the capacity to be, but also because they don't have the same sort of history and experience with slavery as, as, the, uh, as the Mediterranean nations do. And so they define themselves. They say, you know why we're better than everyone else? We're better than everyone else because we don't have slaves. We're free people. And when they do get involved in the slave trade, because this changes the opportunities for, for profit and that kind of thing, draw people into it, and the English expand their naval footprint, they still don't really esteem the slave catching transporting stuff that you know that horrible middle passage bit where people are bundled onto sh you know crowded mm. ships and taken across the sea uh in fact one of the reasons it's speculated by some that that's such a horrible process i mean beyond what it'll you know just inherently it would be a horrible process but why it's even worse is because basically only the most scummy criminal 
villainous people are willing to take that work because it's so sort of considered so unpleasant. And, and uh, also, but I think another part of that in the British case is because the same guys who are doing that, correct me if I'm wrong, tend to be uh, the kinds of guys who would be shipping prisoners to the colonies, Virginia, later right. Australia. Generally, generally moving, well, that's 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 a bit later, the ones that kind of moved against the slave trade. Um, but, but Virginia is earlier. Virginia is like in the 60s. Yeah, Virginia, Virginia is earlier. Uh, so moving around human cargoes for a very long time considered to be uh, taboo kind, or kind of gross yeah yeah just kind of gross uh, uh you know making money off of it might be considered gross or might not it, it depends on the society but the actual like doing the physical work of you know, chaining people up and stuff is is pretty much universally considered evil i mean even in the american south right they're I don't know about evil though. I'll hold back on evil. Uh, I think they're, they're, I think super gross. Yeah, yeah. They're they're writing they're writing um, you know these defenses of slavery and why they say that you know black people should be subservient to white people and all this white supremacist stuff. And at the same time, they ban the catching of new slaves. And that's 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 I think quite interesting that uh, you know that really has been the point at which people sort of go. Even in the distant past, there seems to be something inherent in, in, in society that makes people look at the catching of, of human beings and go, Ugh. Yeah, I agree. And and this was this was uh, how Aristotle put it, right? He's like, This is a this is exposing that there's a problem here. And in particular, if people are fighting back, then it's a bad problem. And I think so, but since we've come down this track, an interesting thought about Bernard Williams's analysis that's bothered me now since last holidays when I reread this text for the first time as an adult was that he he makes the case. I wonder if Marcus Aurelius is also indicted in this regard. No, that would be later. Uh, he makes the case that. No, it wouldn't, because this is from Bernard Williams' perspective. It is actually, it's definitely one of the Latins. I can't remember who. I think Aurelius may be involved. I think Cicero's his main guy. Seneca. Seneca's his main target. He says, between the Greeks and the Romans, the arguments to defend slavery as an institution become even more important to have because Rome is expanding its definition of citizenship. And so that's applying this question like, what are these categories like foreigner, hostile foreigner, friendly foreigner, potential immigrant, citizen, slave, like the social ontology is getting politically changed uh, by an incredible army, amongst other things, a tax collection system. And at the same time, you've got some uh, intellectuals who are being paid to write down their thoughts. And so there's even more debates about well, there's even more sophisticated debates. I don't know if there's more debate overall about uh, whether or not slavery is legit, as the youth would say. And Bernard Williams' complaint is this. He says, Seneca says, as terrible as it is to be a slave, at least there's something that remains untouched. And 
this is kind of maybe cashed out as cognition, I suppose, would be one way to put it, like the ability to think your own thoughts. Yeah, the, the Stoics the Stoics are actually pretty big on this. Uh, Huge, that, exactly. You know, you, you can actually completely eliminate uh, suffering if you just do the mental work. And, and uh, they don't go as far as saying that, like, being a slave offers you a better route to, like, the good way to live, the good life. But they say but there's some implications how happy that, you are. Yeah, how happy you are is actually kind of irrelevant to your material circumstances. They totally say that. Point. They totally. Right. So, and, and material circumstances, like a lot of it gets cashed out in terms of property and power also, but more up and down the chain from being a free person to being a ruler. That slave category, they do kind of leave out a little bit. But I, I'm well, not I think, saying I think, always. I think I sometimes... Think one of the... I think one of the Stoics was actually a former slave or something. I'm not sure which one, though. Terence was definitely an African, and I think he was a slave who sort of made his way into being a Freeman intellectual. Uh, anyway, so here's Bernard Williams' problem with all of this. Did And Bernard Williams, a very good English gentleman, made very good jokes and wrote beautiful philosophy. Very seldom got like snarky but he gets kind of snarky here and he says these guys were just trying to make out as if slavery is not that bad and this is the most evil thing that you can ever write down this is very terrible they should be sort of denounced for doing this and we should continue such denunciations and it's kind of like it's just out of step with how how he usually thinks and writes. But it made sense to me why. Uh, through a social identity analysis, I was like, you know, it's like a smart white man who's kind of old and probably, and from what I can tell, hasn't thought that much about race questions, but has definitely thought enough about them that he's got the right answers to those questions. But the secondary questions, the questions that emerge from those questions, like how should we think about the history of slavery? Like maybe there he hadn't thought all that much about it. And that's not a terrible thing because he was thinking a lot about a lot of other stuff. But it's kind of shining up in this thought that like, even if you make the ontological claim that a person is so constituted that from the inside, they have private thoughts and subjective experiences that are very valuable and important and that those can't be uh, totally stripped away by a sustainable regime of human chattel, then, then that's not only not worth debating, that's evil, that's terrible. You should denounce that. I thought this was just like a flare-up of... A blind spot. We all have these blind spots. I'm sure if anyone, uh, you know, tucks into us in 50 years, they'll see blind spots in us. But I thought it was an interesting one. And, and it does kind of tie into, you know, the, the first thought of once slavery ends, what do you do? It's not automatically obvious what the good answer is. There's also something about like, while you're a slave, is there nothing good to do? 
besides revolt for your own liberation? Answer is no. There's still there are other good things to do, and that is difficult to hold on to. You know, if you're in the same position vis-a-vis -vis slavery as someone who thinks that, like, I don't know, that no one, that Schindler's List is an evil movie to have produced because in this turmoil, like a hero did find himself in the midst of some selfish action. You know, there's like, there's a there's an inclination to be very, very simplistic. That, that that kind of anyway obviously makes a mess yeah. of so on many moral, things on moral, on moral questions people do seem to uh, you know default to that because people are very sensitive to that whole um you know attempting to justify by downplaying kind of thing that 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 is often used by people who are up to no good uh but at the same time i agree that it's it's a bit silly because yeah. you can lose some of the you know really important texture uh in, in in life and moral questions so slavery is difficult and to understand it, we need to understand freedom and vice versa there's got to be a, a a thing there dynamic equilibrium do you think there's something is it too much for me to segue by saying there feels to be something slavish about the call from so many of our leading lights in the in the biggest newspapers and so on, TV shows, for, for mandatory vaccination. Is that like an exaggeration? It's not really slave slavish, it's something else. Yeah, I don't know. I'd need to think a lot more about it. Um but I like your segue because we didn't plan to talk about the history of slavery at all. Uh, we we're going to start off by talking about uh, the latest on the Omicron variant, which we discussed last time, um, which is, of course, driving all this renewed enthusiasm for locking everyone up or telling everyone what to do or just generally, you know, punishing people for doing the naughty things. Uh, so... What is the latest on the Omicron variant? No, hold on. Let's, I, I'm very keen to get to the latest, but I don't have an answer uh, for. We hold back so far, but we've just we've just set this up. I don't know. Don't you think it feels a little bit like the relationship owner? I like that when you were talking about slaves who had become free and then went to go work for the same person you describe that person as the owner rather than the former master because master master slave relations kegel and so on like it's not a nice it's it master is a very good word i think to try and protect from those kinds of intrinsically negative associations i think if you talk about tennis or writing or well, so yeah, master to master, master your craft is a, right. master, is a greater... master isn't exclusive to slavery. Any kind of hierarchical relationship can be defined by master. But uh... but is it the same relationship? So if I've mastered tennis, that means I'm not just okay at driving the ball. It means I drive the ball exactly where I want it to go. 
Whereas the owner of a slave is the owner of the slave, whether or not he's good at getting the slave to do what he wants him to do or not good at doing what yeah. he wants him to do. So, so that, that was uh, one of the things I was trying to say there is that uh, owner okay. is something that only, you know, if you own another human being, that person is a slave by definition. So it is a better word to describe. Yeah. Someone no, than you, master. You chose wisely. So like, is there, it, so what is ownership? Ownership, in my opinion, and this is, I think, where classical liberals and libertarians jump off in a different way, is that I think libertarians don't have a good account of what ownership is, whereas classical liberals do. Classical liberals say ownership is if there's a social convention that will return your property to you. And if there's a formalized police force and law and order and something, then it'll be codified and regularly implemented. You own your house very clearly because there's a title deed, which means the system has been so codified that not only does law enforcement react in the event that you're robbed and you go and tell them and then they go and try and find the thief, but even in anticipation of any attempt to... Uh, undermine your property rights uh this cadaster has been set up which records whose stuff is what and uh there's a there's an evidentiary basis of appeal which is something that's codified in law that you can use uh before someone even touches you or comes close to it you know someone writes a letter you can write a letter that gets them arrested uh this is this is this is the sense of ownership that that I take to heart, and in that sense, it's like maybe it is fair to say that there's something slavish about our response to the Omicron development, which is to say people don't just want other people to do what they think is good, but they want to treat them like property, like th things that they own. In the same sense of not that they masters, like they've got a good ability to put the tennis ball right down the line where they want them to but like their owners in the sense that they want the government they want the state coordination of violence to bear its force upon those who 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 won't go the way they want them to go right treat people like chess pieces yeah you can push them you can pull them you can make them do what you want and that this is the necessary thing it's a it's a trap that into uh, uh, and once again going on about uh, Thomas Saul. Uh, Thomas Saul makes this point all the time. He says, you know, this is a common failing of intellectuals is that they really, they really often fall into this trap of wanting to move people around like chess pieces. Well, it's a good idea. Where is it a good idea? It's a good idea to think about people like chess pieces. If you're doing epidemiology or basic economics, supply demand curves, that's just thinking, you know, bishops go this way, rooks go that way. Uh, if black goes there, white goes there. It's good to model us. And models, unfortunately, inevitably put to one side some aspect of free choice. Because free choice, in its fullest sense, is unpredictable. Only the agent will know what comes because it's the agent that's choosing. So... To do any modeling, you have to let go of it. And intellectuals have to do a lot of modeling. 
one of the great developments like after accounting was was human accounting social accounting which we call quantifiable political science or economics or epidemiology all that stuff you know that's good but what's really crap is if you don't treat people like chess pieces or or tennis balls rolling down a hill or something that obeys natural you know quantifiable equations and laws but you actually treat people like that like how you deal with them and in in particular you do that by trying to bring down the army on their on their shoulders or okay you know everyone's like we're not right, saying it's confusing that you can't, it's con we're not saying we're going to force model. you i just want to say one thing just to get this out of the way uh there's this wonderful line uh from the germans i can't remember how to put it properly but they say you must distinguish between being forced and being like coerced so if you're forced it's like the policeman is holding your arm down and putting the jab in you whereas if you're being coerced it's like well we won't force you like that but we'll hold things back from you uh if you don't and the germans are good they've got 3g uh, which is to say they recognize the importance of if you've already been infected. But it's kind of an interesting way how it's been applied here because people say here, we don't want to literally have the police force people to get jabbed, but we will withhold the jab. Sorry, we will withhold their right to enjoy various government services unless they get jabbed. And as a cardinal example, you don't get to collect your SASA grant unless you've been jabbed because that's a government service much more than transport there is no public transport here there's no like subways or trains that even have tracks in johannesburg uh <laughs> there's no like although this is a relatively recent development <laughs> but it's very pertinent uh and there's these are the things that the europeans are leveraging and so on you can't do that here so what what government what's the best government service it really is the best government service, grants. So you don't get your grants if you don't get vaccinated. Anyway, right. Nick, so I'm is, just interrupting a... to say that when I say forced, I consider a policeman forcing a jab into your arm and telling us a, a below the breadline person who literally only survives with her family on the crumbs that they can gather together with that minimum grant, uh, saying to her, you can't get that grant unless you get jabbed, is this same kind of thing. So I think um, even if we won't suffer it, it's, yeah, I mean, dude, it's mad. Sorry. Yeah. So, oh, no, I forgot what I was going to say. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you just had one too many interruptions. I almost remembered right up until, right up until the, the last interruption. Anyway. Uh, no, you, you, you was, yeah. I can't remember. <laughs> no, dude. Okay. So you were saying, you were saying that, that, yeah. yeah, sorry, I remember, I remember. Uh, the, 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 the real problem here is not being able to distinguish the sort of context in which things should be done. So, you know, as you say, modeling is pretty useful, but a lot of intellectuals make the mistake of saying, uh, applying the rules of the model in the classroom to the real world, rather than drawing from it to see what we can learn to create a more sort of complex response to whatever problem. They sort of say, well, no, no, the world is the model. The model is the world. And we can completely strip people of their humanity and treat them like data inputs in the model. 
and that's when things go off the rails when the technocrats turn from being helpful to being evil and you can see why it's so tempting the better we get at technocracy because they get more sucked into those ideas this is, and they get more convinced of their own glory this is literally the original impulse behind socialism right it was the ordered rational planning of society based on data models and and uh, and that kind of thing i mean that's why for a very long time socialism was described as quote unquote scientific in fact marx marx said yeah marx, marx, marx said two, was scientific. two lines right the one was that the one was this critical theory line which the austrians pick up and then becomes critical race theory he said uh you know i'm going to paraphrase very badly now philosophy is not about describing the world it's about changing the world uh and the other one was the world is full of little equations <laughs> not 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 free people not people who have the right to go dance or sing or nap and where you can't predict what they'll decide to do and what's best to do and you can't quantify it no little equations to be controlled so okay i we we obviously both don't think the mandates are a good idea but what does it say about omicron i think i said some of this on sunday it is worth just reflecting on the facts basically right. the thing so we know a yeah. bit more than we used to know right yeah so 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 what we were saying last sunday it's it's only been strengthened in the intervening week but in a very limited way there's still a lot to find out i want to be very sincere in this caveat we don't really know we're just uh, exploring possibilities here that being said the possibility that strikes me as most likely is that omicron developed in south africa because we have the best levels of antivirus. So you got the virus, you got the antivirus, and then you got the anti-antivirus. And our antivirus, which is the anti-antivirus, is just the virus's way of trying to get around our virus, our antivirus. Our antivirus comes from getting infected and recovering. It comes from uh, getting vaccinated. Vaccinated is a much cheaper way to do it, in the fullest sense of what's cheaper. The thing about both us and them is the virus is also downloading new apps. In the same way that we've downloaded new antivirus, it's downloaded new anti-antivirus. And at the same time, it's this is evolution, it's evolving to reproduce, basically to reproduce faster. It's on what is going up. The, th the thing about if you're in a community where 90% of people already have antivirus, you're trying to spread in that network. You want to get really good at breaking back in, even where there's some antivirus. At least breaking back in enough to spread to the next computer. Not to like take over all of its hard drive systems and eventually short circuit it and make it not work. Just enough for long enough that you can get from there to the next one. So that's what Omicron looks to have done. And uh what looks good the last two weeks hospitalization data there was a huge jump 
from like three weeks ago to two weeks ago, but then it stayed flat from two weeks ago to a week ago. And that huge jump was off such a low base that it's like, you know, when six turns into 12, it's not a big deal. It's it's a big deal, obviously, for those people involved, but uh, statistically, it's really, really small tail stuff. So other data that's come in is that uh, the first time Omicron was mentioned in a scientific, a scientific journal, still preprint, uh, it's for the study of 3 million South Africans, just under 3 million, uh, and they only found about 35,000 reinfections. So it's like one in a hundred chance of people getting reinfected. And uh, of those no deaths reported that I can find, I'm looking up confirmation of that. Um, it looks like Omicron is pretty good at reinfecting. It looks like the basics of our immunology mean that if you do get reinfected or you've been vaccinated and you get infected, you, you're looking very good to survive compared to if you'd never had it before and then you got it. Uh, and compared to a whole bunch of other things that are bad, but that can happen on a, on a regular basis. So that's to say this thing, you know, Delta, it evolved. It wasn't much more escapee. It was much more reproductive. That was the app that it downloaded. So it is more like a bear that breaks into your house. And if it catches you, there's a chance it'll kill you. Good chance. Whereas Omicron is more like a mouse that can get through the burglar bars that everyone puts up as soon as a bear attacks. Uh, but, you know, a mouse can be deadly. Let's all remember all wool and they're super gross. But, like, if it's in the kitchen, it's just most likely to steal some cheese and then scuttle off to the next house. And that's not too bad. So uh, that's the mouse thesis. Uh, I've also, I think since last week, found... Series, I mean, he had more today. I think at this stage, it's like, you know, anyway, several threads of tweets from Trevor Brad Bedford, uh, who Harvard guy, MacArthur genius, runs his own lab. Um, and he seems to think this is worth considering. No one's saying this is for, for certain, but it's worth considering. And if it's true, then we gave the world through the world's worst lockdown and the most spread perversely. We created a situation where there was so much natural antivirus, which is the best kind, um, and therefore provides the harshest pressure on COVID to evolve. Uh, we, we created the mildest variant of COVID. And by the way, I just was reading a study before we had this conversation uh, that was published months and months ago. Uh, that laid out a good model for why this is what one would expect. Uh, so it's like maybe happening. Some evidence suggests it was predicted and it would fit the theory that most of us have been infected. We don't know if most of us have been infected because we're only going off, uh, you know, rough estimates here. We really should have serologic. We really should have tests about that to figure out who has had it before uh we'll try and make that happen anyway so this is the point is that like there's a good chance that we're we're in the same place with mandates of vaccines that the the df milan was with apartheid for the purpose of uplifting white afrikaners it's like just when at least it makes sense 
this is when politically it gets pushed over the hill and you go from like we've had lockdowns that have i think been irrational and like some benign and some maybe good stuff to like when the thing is the least threatening the response from the government is the most dastardly well that sounds um, very much like how sa seems to end up doing things sometimes <laughs> Yeah, and everything's much more chilled now than it was then. But it's like, it's not that chilled because we're alive. And I I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Is the government... It seems insane to impose mandates. But insane things have happened before. If that happens, how does it not backfire? How does it not, like, accelerate the worst impulses of, like, populism? And, you know, I, I'm not afraid that if that happens, like we'll push back and we'll have a lot of wind in our sails and I'm sure we'll stop it from happening. Yeah, I think probably be pretty good happen. to us. But I don't think it's good for the country if that happens, because I think it just emboldens a whole lot of, it's so crazy that it brings out the crazy, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, uh, sometimes I like to leave the, uh, the, 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 the moral points to the philosophers, but just on a practical level, why, as you say, there's there's definitely negative, right? In that it excites all of this energy, this, uh, this this energy which may or may not be good. But as a, as as in terms of actually just getting people to get jabbed, how is this actually going to do anything? Yeah. And I'm just thinking, you know, like let's say there's a punishment. Let's say it's one of the worst ones, like the one that you identified that was proposed by Adrian Basson, uh, which is take away SARS grants. We don't vaccinate people very quickly. It takes us months. It'll take us months and months and months. So if we put in the mandate now, does that mean that you lose your SARS grant now? Or does it mean that you only lose it after six months? Or, or what, right? Like it, it's not it's not entirely clear, and the situation can change by an enormous amount in that time. I mean, therapeutics may come out, which make COVID sort of irrelevant. Uh, or do you lose it like today? In which case, <laughs> tough luck. You know, maybe you're already on the list or in the queue to get vaccinated, and now you can't get food because you know it's been decided by some bureaucrat that you had enough time and tough luck for you. You know, even just, if you do, even if you do do it like in in time, like two days before, like you're super panicked, you're like, "I'll go do it." Oh, then the system is down. Yeah, the so system is down. Reflecting. They ran out at your site that you're at. Yeah, the system. Someone forges the thing. Someone buys your certificate. Who knows, right? Maybe people sell their vaccine certificate to someone else for 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 money. And uh, you know, there's just so many ways it can go completely wrong. And man, that's not a, you know, the last thing South Africa needs is more bureaucracy. All the bureaucracy we really have to deal with in our lives is onerous, difficult, unpleasant, and uh, wastes time and money. And now they're saying, well, no, no, we must, we, <laughs> we've been thinking too small. We need to make the bureaucracy even bigger and it must <laughs> encompass absolutely everyone and be super important to your access to life and services. I mean, has <laughs> I asked the question that I so often ask, has anyone thought this through? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe they have to a certain extent. 
And yes. this is not if they have thought this, a... this through and they've come to this conclusion, then I, I it's difficult to see them as anything but mustache twirling villains. <laughs> no, no, not quite to this conclusion. So, so how does classism work? You know, lowest class is slave, then there's like unemployed class, working class, uh, at leisure class, ruling class, something like that. Uh, actually, how do I get into the leisure class? I know, I know. So, in the in the further breakdown where it just becomes richer poor, um, you have it is the case that like all of those problems get dodged, more or less, if you're in a nice part of Johannesburg. Like the only cost is that you can't go to the supermarket, you can't go to the shopping mall. And you can defray that cost by getting vaccinated, and it's not that hard to do. Imagine, imagine if you didn't want to get vaccinated though, and you got you weren't allowed into the shopping center, which is something I'm actually not sure will happen because I just don't see it practically working on the ground. Um, well, even dude, if companies I... officially comply, right? Like, what are they going to do? Have a security guard standing by the entrance who says, "Where's your vaccine certificate?" I guarantee you, within a week. The security guard will be letting people through because someone will say, "Oh, I forgot it at home." <laughs> yeah, you can do a bit of that, but that's also a cost to pay. Now you have to go lie and pretend. Like, dude, I'm thinking about this because I really like this is a pretty niche podcast, so I don't mind saying it. Like, I really don't want to get vaccinated. I've gone from like I wanted to get vaccinated. I was scheduled to get vaccinated. I got a positive test the day before. It's been a couple of three. Yeah, four months, three and a half months since, something like that. And I was keen at three months to get vaccinated, and I thought it would be good timing. If I did in the beginning of December, i will be kind of like a booster before the thing. And the first study that I read suggested that if you've recovered and you get vaccinated, then that's the best. Then you have sterilizing protection. Then you finally are in the super zone where you can't be infected. I was like, that's perfect. Let's do that. But then I read two studies that like contradicted that study, and then I read another study that like confirmed all the anecdotes that I've heard that like if you've been vaccinated, sorry, if you've been infected and then you get vaccinated, then you will be in bed for like a day or two or three. And that's not so bad. It's like being hungover. You know, I'll go to a good party, even if it means I'll be hungover the next day. But like, what's the benefit? Like I'm seeing two studies that say there might be no benefit at all. I definitely don't volunteer to get hung over for two days if there's no party. So that's changed how I'm thinking. And I'm looking forward to changing back because I know the longer I think like this, the more of a social art, outcast I become because it's important to try and encourage people to vaccinate in general. You don't want people to be complacent, all kinds of things. You know, I, I understand where the social pressures come from to, to not even mention an idea like actually i don't want to get vaccinated for the next six months actually i don't want to get vaccinated for the next eight months because in switzerland they say 12 months after you've been infected they consider you as good as vaccinated at least 12 months of proving like that's how i would like to be uh if it's good enough for the swiss i reckon it should be good enough for me geneva's right there lots of the world's best epidemiologists there i don't think they're monkeying around so I think that 
there will be some people like me. I know some people like me at some of the companies that have mandated the stuff, and then they just go get vaccinated. I know some people who are sort of freelancers, or not freelancers, but they run, they don't have a boss, they've got clients, and got sick, and then got vaccinated as soon afterwards as they could, as soon as their doctors would allow them. The doctors are like, this is a terrible idea. They were like, but is it safe now? They're like, okay, it's safe now. And then they just did it because they didn't want to ever have to be in a conversation where they had to explain why they're not vaccinated because that would raise potential alarm bells in their clients and they and they didn't want to have to deal with that. And I, I get that and I totally respect that. And, I you know, if I was working somewhere else, I'd probably be the same. But since I've got the leisure of not being told by my boss what to do in terms of this and – for now, I'm in a country that's not forcing me. Like, I I don't particularly feel like being sick for a couple of days so I can go into Rosebank shopping center to, or lying on my way in, you know? it's yeah. the, the, the margins are very small. I'm not worried about dying. You know, it's not like this is a big... Yeah, no, I get your point. You just can't bother it really because it's not going to make a difference to your life. And, which is and, and this reasonable. is an answer to your question, have these people thought it through? I think they have. And I'm the kind of guy they want to get. <laughs> and if it's tough enough, I'm the kind of guy they will get. And they're like, and the stakes are pretty low. It's not like we're terribly punishing you. It's not like a big yeah, thing. Honestly, though, how many of you are there, Gabriel? I, I'm pretty normal. <laughs> I don't know, but I think I'm pretty normal. Like, they give, I'm, they give true. <laughs> not, not like I'm the majority, but I think I'm. I kind of occupy a relatively normal position in terms of the part, the very narrow part of South African society that people like Adrian Bassan and Milani Vavut and Wendy, Mandy Weiner and the, the Kusatu, which is also calling for vaccine mandates. I think when all of those guys are calling for vaccine mandates, they, and this advocate that Marius that wrote on News24 that we got shared, I think they, they're thinking, why is mandates a good idea? My case is probably fairly normal. Mm. Working class dude lives in a city, can afford to do it. The only cost is like maybe being put under the weather for a couple of days. The benefit is everyone should do it. That's as far as they're thinking. They have thought it through that far. And they could very well get me, dude. I think I'm in their crosshairs and I'm the kind of guy that they'll get. Mm. Yeah, although I must say... Um, from the anecdotal evidence I've heard, uh, what kind of side effects you get is really, really, really random. It seems to differ from person to person and from shot to shot. Well, that's for sure. There's still patterns that uh, can so, be extrapolated. No, sure, right. But my point is uh, it, it could be a little bit like rolling the dice, right? Like <laughs> you go and maybe actually you won't have anything too hectic. Maybe you'll have like an, a headache for a couple of hours and then it's gone. Um, uh, so my first jab, I had a sore arm, and I felt a bit tired, and I was fine. Wasn't really anything. Wouldn't even have noticed it if I wasn't looking out for it. Hmm. Uh, second jab, for about 18 hours, I felt really sick and feverish and awful. Uh, and then it was over. Yeah, which is kind of good. You, yeah, and some of my you... friends have had very little side effects, and some of them have been like felt really awful. Not as good. Hmm. The little side, especially with these ones, I am 
a bit braggadocious, but you people with your useless little flimsy mRNA jabs. Why do you what, what what's your problem with the mRNA jab? Huh? Why, why do you hate on us, us Pfizer gang? Dude, because Johnson and Johnson is so much better. Dude, yeah, all of this see, stuff, it's... all of this stuff about like immunity waning, it's only antibodies, it's not T cells. And we always knew that antibodies would wane because we know how they work. And they've always there's like there's a thousand papers written in 2019 about how antibodies wane. You know, this is not like this is not new science. The anti the the mRNA vaccines tend to, but Pfizer's not the worst, AstraZeneca, but they tend to do more antibody triggering. And the okay, but old, but the they still provide T cell immunity too, right? A little bit, and and look, a little bit might be more than enough. You know, because because of the way the T cell immunity actually improves, at least for a while, uh, it 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 probably is the real deal. I think it's the real deal, but I'm just saying it's more of a question mark than with the the classic ones. I see. I hope you're getting paid by Johnson and Johnson here, Gabriel, for your shilling for Big J and J. Did I did I did my old rugby coach worked at Johnson and Johnson, old Princeton rugby coach, and he was such a good guy. So I have felt sympathetic. I was like, wow, my only association with this company has been baby powder. And now it's a great rugby coach. Those are very different things. I like both of them. (laughs) There might be someone in the IRL leadership structure, actually, who has something to do with J&J. Don't don't tell me this. Then I'll really have to start worrying about if I'm biased. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell the the IRR is a well-oiled machine of like careful coordination of our great plots. It's like, wait, no, wait, we do have someone. (laughs) (laughs) This sponsor, possibly to be sponsored. I mean, this episode (laughs) to be sponsored by J and J. If we can figure out. Yeah, dude, I'm happy to get sponsored by J and J as long as I get sponsored by Pfizer. You know, then uh, then we can then I'll have to read a scientific paper and we can argue with each other. Be great. Okay, anyway. you get Pfizer sponsored and I'll get J and J sponsored and then we get double sponsored and then we can very good. No, and then when people accuse us because we talked nicely about vaccines of being in the pay of big pharma, we can be like, yes, yes, great. Look at this <laughs> like yacht I bought in Hot Bay. <laughs> or when the sea levels rise <laughs> big oil pay me some more money if you want me to stop talking about sea levels <laughs> the truth about big business is they really don't like people like us very much no man. just they can, kind of annoying they can smell us coming yeah they like they see our sorts of dirty disheveled twitchy eyes and they think oh no this is not no, dude, like a pr investment you, sh- you shake hands and they say oh nice weather and you're like yeah i preferred it yesterday when it was raining and they're like, <laughs> they're like no 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 no, no, no this is not this is not for us um all right well i think i think we're we're drifting off into holiday mode now so no, we start no, wrapping no. Up. Okay, what do you want to talk about stuff? we've got half we've got half an hour but Nick, i don't know if I'm, we need to go half an hour we know we don't need to. I am worried. I'm worried. I, I want to dwell on this slavery point one last time. <laughs> Gotta bring it full circle. I'm I'm worried. I I worry about being a campaigns guy and feeling and feeling the temptation to 
corrupt language, to dilute language. And we've spoken about this. When people say that this is vaccine apartheid, dude, I'm not on board with that. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely not on board with that. I don't think it's cool. I don't, I, I, you know, it can be funny. Funny is its own world, but it's not helpful. It's not cool. It's not accurate. And, and it's just people who are trying to take an intuition pump or like an old esteem distribution success and, you know, try and run through the same circuits, a new battery, and it just doesn't work me and the same with people who like there's a genocide in Uyghurstan. i don't think that's the right word for it i think well we look, should to be fair about I, I, i'm more i'm more sympathetic to the idea that there's something approximating a genocide there and i mean that on the hard definition you, not you are not more... on the soft definition no 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 i mean that on the soft on the hard definition of people being killed and cultures and ethnicities being wiped out on purpose uh i i, I think that that could be going on there. Um, I think there's some. How many people do you think are being killed there? I do not know. No, but, but you could can be... give a sense of a range. I wouldn't be surprised if it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it's hundreds and of thousands. There's other stuff that 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 does also contribute to this whole erasure of culture and ethnicity, like uh, these stories about. Um, Uyghur men basically being taken to the camps and then a Han Chinese party official basically being uh, put in uh, someone's house as their new husband. Uh, you know, it, it seems kind of like trying to basically eliminate the children of a certain ethnicity. Dude, erasing a cult, that's not genocide. Um, I, think, I think it's a terrible mistake. Let's say you go in as the Portuguese and somehow you find a society that like loves your liquor and your women and you're like, we're going to marry everyone off and then there's going to be none of them left in this port. And we just yeah, have to do it for little city states. Dude, that's, that's not that's genocide. Very, dude, that's very different to, to forcing people to basically have children with someone else or eliminating all of the men. Is the woman, is the woman holding a knife to his neck to force her to impregnate him? To force no, him to dude, then, there's, dude, then, there, then there is a break where application of force stops. There's also application of force in the scenario I described at the point of the harbors in dealing with the chiefs, in dealing with the men in the situation. Like, but then it becomes seductive and liquor driven and whatever. Then it's no longer pure force. Then it is a little bit nudge. And I'm saying genocide, and and this is a an old fashioned definition. And I'm not saying that everyone accepts this definition today, but I think the old-fashioned definition where genocide is only being done if it's forced all the way uh, to murdering people in very large numbers. I'm saying that's a definition worth holding on to because that's what we have our visceral response to. And I don't think we need that visceral response to uh, no, I, I agree understand with you. Like, why we what's need going to, on in Uyghurstan is yeah. wrong. We need to so be, we need to be opposed to it. We need to be opposed to it, even if it isn't genocide. I agree, but I do think that it does cross the line, or right. at least and it might cross the line. I think we actually don't know enough because. But we're debating also very... what the line is. Is the line like if women are going in and having babies with Uyghurs? If hand women are going in to have babies with Uyghurs in concentration camps, is that genocide? 
I say that doesn't cross the line. I think that in a lot of these cases, violence is implied. It doesn't have to be actually carried out because you know the consequences of refusal. They don't have to hold the knife to your neck because you you could be the next one in the camp if you don't comply. Sure, I'm terribly old-fashioned. I am too. This, I mean, I, my mind is going to the difference between uh, date rape against men, of which I'm a victim. We talked about once, long early days. I don't know and you podcast, you, you've told me about it, yes. And like, uh, and uh, violently a man raping a woman. Like, to me, I see a similarity. I see some reasons for categorizing it the same. But I see a very sharp difference. I see a major difference. And it's such a difference that I would would rather, you know. Uh, okay, well, let's, let's put, it put like up this, a lot yeah. of Put up a lot of hurdles so that they never let, get let put, Let's put what, it like this. Whatever Maybe words one uses so that they never, so that that major difference doesn't get yeah. lost for a moment. Okay, well, let's let's put it in, in more practical terms. They may well, it may well not le reach to the level of uh, the Nazi state in terms of the the inhumanity and crime and awfulness of what of what's going on. In, well, in, that's uh, easy. Six million. Neither did the neither did the Rwandis, dude. They didn't kill six million people. They killed a million. Okay, people. okay, but I mean, it's not even. We could say that it's not even exactly the same type of thing, right? We can say that it's like kind of the next level down. But that doesn't mean that the Communist Party of China should not be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, I think in practical in practical terms, yeah, we're, we we are to, in a sense debating angels in the pit of the head. Okay, okay. So here's a hard question for you because it's the end of the year and we've actually been dealing with the easy questions. Easy question: Is slavery more complicated than it's made out to be? Yes. Our, our mandates for vaccines are more complicated than that. That's a mean. No, you can answer an easy question in a very good way. I'm not saying we're not doing a good job. Yet. I'm just saying we agree. Here's, here's, or not only we agree, we've got thoughts about this. Dude, I don't know what you think. How do you, how do you destroy the Chinese Communist Party and make sure that it's not replaced by something worse? Yeah, so dude, if I knew the answer to that, I would be trying to work for the US State Department right now <laughs> to work out how to do that. I don't think there is necessarily any surefire way to do that. I think that that is one of the really difficult questions for uh, the, the liberal world, actually, is I think that the Communist Chinese Party needs to be defeated. And I also think that it's incredibly important that in its defeat, we don't just create the next version of the problem. Uh, yeah, which can be like a, a country that's split up into more pieces and more of them are like Taiwan and Hong Kong was and so on. So there's like, you know, that's good for those people. But some of them, some more of them are like North Korea. Right. One of China's problems so, is so big, like you don't want it to, to splinter in that kind of way. And that's one well, of the Chinese it, also, arguments it, about why you should keep it around. If China and America go to war in South Africa, it's going to cause enormous suffering because of the economic damage. I mean, this is, you know, while while I think that morally the case for sort of, or at least in the, or let me put it this way, while I think that Communist Chinese Party definitely deserves to basically be bombed 
into the into the ground and erased uh, completely. I also think that doing the act of doing so would probably be far more disastrous for humanity than not doing so. Uh, so, yeah, I think it is a difficult question. So it's got to be an apartheid. So there's two things. So it's got to be an apartheid style transition, where not only are there relatively no, low debts, but also economic activity is relatively undisrupted. And I don't know if that's actually possible, but it would be nice. And ultimately, the best way for this to happen is for the Chinese people themselves to basically uh, show up to the China, to the Communist Party one day and say, "Look, guys, you know that whole Deng Xiaoping thing." That seemed to be like the right way to go for us. And you guys have abandoned that. And uh, the fact that you've abandoned that after you had stumbled on by accident, in a sense. Yes, the, uh, you did You did so much of the worst. And then you stumbled onto that. And then you stumbled onto that. And then now you've decided that actually, no, we want to go back to the really bad days. <laughs> we've had enough. Go away. Um, and that would be the best way. Uh, for for this to happen, but no, but Nick, let's, no, happen, let's not be naive. That's not dude. That's no, no, that could happen. So the Chinese Communist Party has the greatest control over the esteem market that anyone's had since ancient Egypt, but even that collapsed. Uh, and so I think let's assume that you get enough of that to make it work in our lifetimes. It's not enough. Because the question is not just how to bring about a collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. It's also how to make sure that what comes next is an improvement. And there, it's a precondition that you have domestic support, but also international forces become very important. They so often do shape the, the, the transition. And part of how they do that is going to be determined by their governments and part of it's going to be determined by whatever the fashionable ideas are in their own body's politics that are kind of transitioning through. But that's where, dude, how do you, you know, that's maybe that's a place to try and answer the question, like what would be the best outside conditions to midwife the birth of something great in China in terms of liberal democracy? Well, for one, it would be a world in which uh, ethnic essentialism is relegated back to the dumpster where it deserves to be. I agree, because <laughs> China is yeah. Yeah, we don't live in that world currently, but that would be nice, you know. Um, and uh, one where people think that free markets tend to be better than they're, they're not. That would also be yeah. a world in which would be useful. So these are both of those ideas were solidly there for apartheid. And that is a huge part of the reason that the apartheid transition was as good as it was. Mm. Because the Communist Party had collapsed in Moscow and free markets were on the ascension. Lots of good ideas being pummeled that way. And non-racialism was like still this, you know, post-World War II triumph that rolls through Africa. And it's like, it gets corrupted a little bit by the time it gets here, but it is still being bandied about the Rainbow Nation. Right. It, uh, it does seem like the 90s and maybe the early 2000s were possibly the height of, uh, of the non-racial, when non-racialism was at its strongest. 
So if you've got a bit of that, but it'd have to be much stronger because China's much bigger than South Africa. Then you can get a positive thing. Is the third lesson from like our de Klerk discussion with Rian that like that's not enough? You also need a good federal consensus, and that Dude, this is I, really a huge thing for China, <laughs> as big as it was for South Africa. Like the biggest thing is you have to have lots of people agreeing in a very big way about how yeah, federalism yeah. works. Yeah, no, dude, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm i a bit like a hammer salesman when it comes to federalism. Uh, hammer salesman thinks that every problem can be solved with a hammer. I am very much a federalism salesman. In that I think that it's very good for a lot of things. And China, like all very big countries, and even like some not-so-big countries, uh, is a prime candidate for, for, for federalism. And throughout its history, it's had this problem of going from very, very centralized autocracy, trying to desperately, aggressively hold everything together, uh, a la Simon Boulevard in Grand Colombia, who loved the US and the American Revolution and George Washington. He thought they were the bee's knees and he wanted to copy America. But he also thought that, you know, his people, the South Americans, were just a bit too um, ignorant and primitive and rambunctious to have a federal system. And that's why you needed to hold them together with an iron fist, which of course he would be the hand <laughs> of that iron fist. And he tried to centralize it. I think uh, China's had that same impulse for a very long time. And then every now and again, that system falls over. The empire loses the mandate of heaven, so to speak. Yeah. And it splits very violently into a lot of warring pieces. Yeah. So rather than do the violence- Dude, it is a tale as all the time. Yeah. Why don't we try doing it in a purposeful, peaceful, civilized way, uh, I think that inevitably China will end up breaking apart or at least becoming more decentralized one day. I don't know when that'll be and what the circumstances that will be. And I, I think the best way for it to happen would be for it to happen in a constitutional convention uh, where they delegate an enormous amount of power to the provinces. I like this. Okay, so... Part of the reason I think this is an interesting way of posing the problem in 2022, which is almost where we are, is that they that Pax Americana is over. The superpower rivalry defines the broadest real politic tensions are those between the US and China, Washington and Beijing. Because let's not say China, because Taiwan is also China. But but the question is so much like people won't push hard for the destruction of the Chinese Communist Party until they have a good reason to think that until they have a vision of what comes better that's afterwards. I think the same was true for apartheid. Apartheid could stick around for as long as it did because there was a failure to imagine how it would look better. Not just here, but around the world. Yeah, that's probably true. And it's and this would, I guess, go back to Aristotle, like when slave revolts and stuff. Like, you know, they the, the people inside do a better job of right. of of coagulating instead of just heroes running into the teeth of knives. Like, you get coordinated and proper plots, and the best well, ones are the ones where people have a vision of what comes after that's better. So it's one, good to one, of the, one of the uh, the causes of the American Civil War was the fact that the Southerners believed that the only alternative to enslaving people was some kind of 
total race war genocide of either all white or all black people in the southern states. Now, that's obviously not true, but that was the belief. Yeah. And it and, and it, it's uh, self-fulfilling in the sense that then it takes total war to overcome it. So it'd be even better to like crack, <laughs> yeah, crack the false belief. What what's it that old sort of uh I think it's a line from Kung Fu Panda? One often meets his destiny on the road he takes to avoid it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So and, and if federalism, if if, if 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 with if a failure to imagine non-racialism is endemic in America and parts of Europe, and a failure to stand fast by the principles of of good property rights that are well enforced, uh, to secure a genuinely free market and not a crony capitalist nonsense, if those are two of the if those are two of the failures in the world to to imagine a better china because you know it's so easy to imagine that if there is a collapse like half the bad ideas will just stick around because they're sticking around here and and actually get worse because in the in the fog of war the worst things can emerge memes or, or virus memes or whatever like maybe the third one like maybe that gets talked about more than the third one being federalism but it is a it is a huge 21st century problem like this is clearly something that emerges out of pax americana what do you have you have greek you have the greeks fail to even with a referendum and two elections in favor of dropping out of the eu drop out of the eu they stick in the eu they nail bite on how to show some muscle as government and what's greece's first actually genuinely internationally fascinating policy move since failed Grexit, it's vaccine mandates. <laughs> the government can't get people to pay taxes in Greece. How's it going to get them to get vaccinated? Dude, the world's best black market in vaccine mandates coming to you straight from Malacca. Okay? That's a very inside Greek joke, but never mind. Dude, second place goes to Austria, which is like nearly elected some, I don't want to say neo-Nazis because it's another overused word, but like some like pretty wild right wingers. Like, I mean, the, the coalition Austria the has yeah. a, has a bit of a <clears throat> bad track record when it comes to Nazis. Dude, since Freud, it has given us nothing but nightmares, but anyway, <laughs> some of my best friends aren't Austrian. <laughs> some of my best friends are um, <laughs> They the other countries go for vaccine mandates. Shit, coming to you February second uh, next year. So, and why are they doing that? I think it's. I think it really is. Why aren't they listening to the Swiss and the Germans and their own scientists? Like, I think it's because the EU's in this mad space. The next big thing is Brexit. Like, within that Scottish independence, like countries are trying to figure out, or people are trying to figure out how to tear power. Like, you belong to a city, you belong to a country, you belong to some power beyond that that's regional the au the eu the new alliance the the five eyes the whatever and beyond that you belong to the un some attempted expression at like uh uh cosmopolitanism which i'm a big fan of and i think it's sadly being less and less well expressed because that being a human doesn't just mean like we're all humans like well you've got some duty to try and express yourself qua human in a political sense. I think that it is, I think it is, and Irish 
reunification and what's going on in Myanmar and Cambodia. There's just all these, like what, what your father was saying about the Indonesian guerrillas that are still holding the heels of somewhere. <laughs> Terribly sad sounding. Like, like it's like we, this is a problem that we haven't figured out how to nest group agents, how to, how to devolve power, where some some powers you see stay with the federal level, some come down to the state level. Yeah, so and I think I think part of the problem with that has been America, uh, in the sense that America is quite a federal country, and that due to their history and the fact that federalism was used to defend slavery, uh, that federalist, especially in the, Anglo, in the Anglo worst, world, yeah, worst fake news that I ever heard in America was civil war was about states rights like right i actually did yeah. meet people who still believe that yeah oh. no it's <laughs> um so that has definitely hurt i think the anglo world uh in their ability to, to talk about and discuss federalism because anyone who talks about it is considered a closet racist i'm sure we have critics who if they heard our discussion and promotion of federalism on this podcast would say well, ah, typical, typical white cis men trying to uh, hide their racism and their ethnic separatism in federalism, right? Yes. Who's that darling who wrote about me in the Financial Mail? I'm sure he'd say that. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Precisely, right? So that's that's definitely been part of the problem. And part of the problem is the fact that the, you know, because power has been centralizing in the central space for a long time. Everyone's just been focused on how to take control of that power. And so people haven't really been thinking about federalism too much. And what happens when the, the good and the great of the political class ignore an issue, you get a lot of irresponsible fly-by-night grifters, race merchants, the, the, the scum of the intellectual world saying, yeah, well, you know what we really need to do? We need to take this federalism thing and drive it. And then you get the bad version of federalism, the kind of little right. Englander, so, new, gross, so, so, nasty. So exactly the problems, like socialism, racialism. Right. When, when you get federalism in the bad way, those questions devolve from being national-level questions to provincial-level questions or state-level questions. And this, you're just back in the same bunghole. Right, getting getting screwed in. So uh, it's a little bit like immigration. There was this refrain, I think, from the National Review crowd in the US, which is that if 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 the sort of moderate people don't talk about immigration, then eventually <laughs> you're going to have a whole bunch of not very nuanced people talking about immigration. Yeah, on which my point, my point in coronavirus <laughs> is, guys, I'll say it again. The studies show, unfortunately, the travel bans do work. And, uh, you know, meta studies, studies of studies are, are ah. and even if some uh, infected people have crossed the borders, then it's like having caught a couple of variants of coronavirus. If you get the travel ban, it stops more from coming in. And that means your viral load is less and you can deal with it. Now, as it happens with Omicron, I think that travel bans are a silly idea because if Omicron outcompetes Delta and Omicron is a mouse rather than a monster, Delta is definitely a monster. <laughs> then we want more Omicron and less Delta. Yeah. You'd really want, you'd want everyone to get vaccinated and all that. And on top of that, you'd want Omicron to be spreading more than Delta. 
So in that sense, I think it may be a non cult. But the 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 point is that although the evidence is pretty clear cut, it's not completely clear cut. Let me not be distracted by that. But what's said on the TV I've got and the you know local and international sources, it's all very one way. It's totally one way. Even our own colleagues. Uh, only one person has written about it and. The headline was travel bans don't work. Uh, anyway, so, but we talked about that last week. The, the, yeah, if you don't talk about borders, then when even in the middle of a pandemic, it's like no one's allowed to talk about the fact that, that border control is quite helpful in managing viral load. So that's a nightmare. Okay, I want to propose a solution. And it's, I think it's quite far out, and I don't think we're going to get all the way through it. We have come to an hour and a half, but it's our end of your episode. So let's see if it lasts a minute or half an hour. Here's, <laughs> here's a solution that comes from a family friend, great old friend, mentor, guys helped me a lot when I was trying to figure out how to be a freelance journalist, Dennis Beckett. And he's written about this idea in various ways. He just published something yesterday that sort of updated it. I think in a in a fabulous way. I'll drop this in the in the recommendations as per our recommendation. He thinks we need strong democracy, and strong democracy means devolving power to the level that the silent majority starts voting again and plays the decisive role. And anywhere at the IRR, we all know, like, we've got this great polling, like, there's lots of good people, must be in a way that they are not being well incentivized to vote, or not being well incentivized to vote on the issues that matter. And so if this means that it takes getting down to your township level for people to vote on, like, should we boycott Israel, or should we demand China gets investigated for the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis or should we have or reject affirmative action or should in the in the um, procurement procedures for infrastructure development or you know like you can have however big or small you want the question to be and his thought is that like at municipal level or local level you've got the best chance of like actual reason responsive democracy like centrists turning up because they're sort of irritated there's a clear issue they're not married to a party or an ideology they're just like this sucks fix it um but the only issues that are really on hand at the local level are like sewerage and lights and we all a little bit like you know this thing with slavery has gone away but we still kind of try not to think about sewerage after it's been after you press the flusher you know, working with surge still has an analogy with like slave catchers because in a way it carries a bit of a disesteem and you can, and I'm, and I'm not endorsing that disesteem at all. Good people are doing that work, but you can see why people kind of switch off to those issues, even if they really do matter to them. Uh, and so he's like, the system we've got is perfectly designed to keep common sense voters away. And the way to solve this is like hyper federalism. And then if your local council is willing to make an alliance with the next local council and the next local council to all try and stop the army from invading the next province or whatever, then uh, that's good. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, yeah. so it sounds, so. dude, it sounds far out, and I'm putting it very quickly, and like he does a, a good, but I do think that's more or less what what the idea comes out to. And you've got experience at council level, so like I had immediate pushback, <laughs> but I think I think yours yeah. would be so, more interesting. Yeah. Here's one of the problems. Common sense people don't engage with politics, not because they don't feel like they can make a real difference, although that is part of the problem, maybe, but also because it's boring. And I guarantee you that if you bring lots of very complicated issues like that, a lot of common sense people will just be like, unfortunately, the reality of local government is that often the side that wins is the side with the largest bladder. Ah, you sit the iron the bottomed, we said. Hitchens is light on Stalin. The most powerful thing to be is iron bottomed. Yeah. yeah. And that is that those people often do oh. tend to be the most extreme in a group <laughs> because that's why they're sitting there for the entire time. It's the guy that the people uh, who, who, who often have their way in local government issues, let's say, uh, you know, whether a speed bump should be put in, you can have 80% of a community against it, but there will be a couple of moms who don't have jobs. Or, 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 or like really panicky parents or something who are yeah, really some worried retired about dude. Yeah, some yeah. old retired man who doesn't like fast cars. And he will sit there through the whole meeting making his voice heard, complaining and making it just difficult to do anything that goes against his wishes and get his way and get a speed bump put up on every single road. <laughs> so... I think that there, there are some real problems with that kind of hyper-federalism. One of the benefits of federalism is that uh, it might not necessarily produce better policy results, but it forces you to look in the eye with the people who you're subjugating with the policies that you voted for. Uh, so I think in that sense... So, it, it, okay, so there's this cost-benefit trade-off where like, the more localized it is, the more politicians have to face their constituents. And yet the more complicated it becomes because there's more, you know, like a family is such is like the most complicated unit. The only thing more complicated than a family is maybe like your internal monologue. Yeah, like 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 local community politics is some of the most complicated, treacherous mad stuff you've ever seen in your life. If you've ever been involved in a residence association, you probably know what I'm talking about. The level to which things like personalities and stuff play a big role is, is incredible. Um, so and so is, on a certain yeah. level, I think that, you know, you can take it, you can take federalism a little bit too far. I also think that foreign policy should, that is why we have the state, the bigger state, and that is precisely the, the one realm in which people should be making every single individual decision uh, as, as to what to do. So the question of what to do about Israel or something like that, that's a foreign policy question. And obviously people should have a say over it because, you know, they should elect representatives to deal with that. But as far as I'm concerned, that would be the one area that people shouldn't be touching directly because it requires a kind of... Expertise. Much longer expertise, longer term stuff. It requires people to know something about the place you're talking about. Yes, Minister is so good on this, dude. Yeah. B because in in season one, in Yes, Minister, uh, the the new minister comes in and he's all about localizing like education or something, which I'm a big fan of. I think vouchers is the way to do it. He wants local level administrators. Um, so I'm for hyper-federalism if it means putting vouchers in people. Yeah, but, no, me too, 100%. Uh, 
and then it's complicated and who which grocer do you like or which shisha and yama you like but that's like the good complicated okay but so he, they, he talks about the army he's like imagine he says imagine if every little borough had its own military expenditure budget they'd all they'd blow up newcastle in three years <laughs> <laughs> and that's like a good one-liner but then you come back and you're like okay that's actually an exaggeration it's a bit crazy and then he gets the expertise point that you say in season two because a new person comes in with the same localization drive and he says okay minister you would like to stop the bureaucracy from being in charge of this uh we're terrible lifelong appointees there's no market force to control us there's no electorate to vote us in or vote us out it's awful i understand you would like foreign policy and beyond this best yes minister line we're terribly machiavellian the united kingdom joined the eu to destroy the eu this has been our policy all along to keep europe divided <laughs> so and this was said 10 20 years ago that was so right it was a good tv show anyway so we're all very terrible as bureaucrats so why don't the politicians take over and have them locally elected <laughs> to do foreign policy tell us last week we were in cote d'ivoire what is the capital of Cote d'Ivoire? What are the religions in Cote d'Ivoire? What's the breakdown? What is their attitude to Iran when it comes to oil embargo breaking and when it comes to the uh, OPEC agreement? What is their language breakdown in terms of English and French and other languages? And then, of course, next to that, we have the Gabon, we have Cameroon in the region, although it's quite far away. We've got Nigeria. Can you name the capitals of any of those countries? And he can name one. And then he says, oh, well done, Minister. You can name one of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this And is, it's this like is if also... you've lived in the bureaucracy and to, to, to get to be middle management, you have to spend 10 years, two years in five different countries. So you actually, you know, cover well, the map. Maybe in, maybe in 1980s Britain, you did have to do that. Um, although It's still like that. In some places, yeah. But in a lot of places, I think that bureaucracy standards have fallen, actually. But, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, but that is so how I, it should be, right? Yeah, there, is still, there is still a place for, for bureaucrats. Um, as much as I despise bureaucracy, there is still a place for it. I'm not a complete sort of abolitionist of the bureaucracy. But... Uh, I think I think the key here is that in your hyperfederalism, you still have representative government. It's just your representative is actually allowed to do things. So, you know, rather than voting on whether to put up the new school or not, uh, or the speed bumps or whatever, yeah, give that power to your councillor, and then your councillor can take the rap for it if you if they're doing things that you don't like. They're accountable to you in a very direct way. I think Wait, that might be the way. No, but so it does sound like you're saying right now, okay, so right now the councillor has very little power, but if they can help on the school and the speed bump, if they can actually make the decision themselves rather than have to defer it up to council, that would be a step in the right direction. So that yeah. is hyperfederal. You're saying like in the same way that the country is to the state or the province, so the city is to the to the borough or the council, the suburb. Right, but a council and if still you have does have direct have suburban the, a councillor still, though, has access to the bureaucrats who might argue as to why this is a good idea. So bureaucrats have the role, but the responsibility is sitting with a councillor rather than the council is a nice 
then it becomes more real. Because right now, right. Dennis is right. In South Africa, you're just voting for someone to ex to help you in the call center. Uh, <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and that's, that's it. That's, dude, that's useless. Because the bureaucrats dude. are, as, as, as uh, what's his name? What's the character uh, in, in Yes Minister? Humphrey. Humphrey. As Humphrey says, he, yeah, as you outlined in his whole thing, that, that they're not... That they're, they're, uh, when the bureaucrats are too empowered, they go completely out of control. Yeah. Um, still, even you know. Anyway, it's. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> we, I've got to say, no. So the the thing, okay. So 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 direct democracy, connection to federal in China is that here, our councillors are like call center assistants, and I've got to say this to you because I don't think I've said it. One of my best friends worked in a call center for so many years that's a gruesome job dude. dude it is such a gruesome job and when i go and speak to the you know my job a lot of it's like go uh, now and then talk to our call center ladies who are trying to help people sign up to the ir dude it's an amazing amazing gruesome job that truly is the 21st century equivalent of being I, I believe an infantry has... soldier in an army fighting for freedom because yeah. it is I, I, like I, I, wet I, boots and rotten food and i think i'm correct in saying that possibly the job with the highest turnover rate is call center agent so but i told him about your job nick he was like oh you, how's it like at work i was like i've made friends with this guy nicholas army so great he's like what did you do i was like dude he was a call center assistant he's like what do you mean i was like he was a ward counselor dude they would call the call center and not just a private call center like they call the government call center <laughs> and then it wouldn't work and then they'd say can i speak to the manager and then it wouldn't work and then that's who he'd that call when you were and lucky he, dude when you were he lucky can't do, dude, a lot he of people just call you first <laughs> dude it's the only he was like that is a worse job than <laughs> he was so happy <laughs> To know there's a worse job out there than being a call center agent. <laughs> <laughs> and the turnover yeah. rate is pretty high for counselor, given like the it, 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 actually, nice. it, it actually is. Um, and, and you know what's funny is in, in South Africa's townships and rural areas, councillors do have more power. Not legally, they just kind of do. It's it's kind of hard to explain. But you know. I've heard of instances where someone tries to open a, a corner shop in Soweto and they get told they're not allowed to because even though they've got like licensing approval in there, because the councillor hasn't approved it. There's nowhere in the law that says that, but just because of the sort of, <laughs> <laughs> just because of the informal way that it works and the fact that yeah. you have the kind of party political systems all meshed together with the government. The there. party and state is so meshed that the yeah. councillor and the councillor. That, that the ANC councillor also know, has ANC deployees in the police and he can get them to show up to your front door and be like, I'm sorry, but your business doesn't have approval from the councillor. This is but, why the cabbage bandit thing was such a big deal because the, yeah. it was like, there was there wasn't a proper law to stop him in the beginning and then he was sent to go and find out and he came back he's like there's no law and the police were still like no but you can't yeah the police said yeah tough right an enormous of a lot of amount of south africa is governed basically under that by rule, that under, with a party yeah. behind like with a an organizing yeah, precisely. yeah but even so right so while the councillor does have more power in an anc ward <laughs> the community is also far more likely to burn down your house 
if right. they don't like what's going on. Right. The police office gets burnt down. The like. It, it happens quite often that councillors are driven out of their houses because of something like a power outage or maybe a community yeah. is being moved to another area and they don't want to be moved from where they're living. Alex, and they will literally yeah. go and burn the person's house down and throw rocks at them and they have to run for their lives. And it's just like the early 90s again. Yeah. This is also <laughs> not how the system should work. <laughs> and that's another reason why the turnover is quite high because, man, uh, it's not it's not fun. Facing an okay, so, so here's a question. So I was refreshing... When I when I first joined the institutes, I was worried about the fact that I was like a Republican liberal, little R Republican, like Seneca, Hannah Arendt, um, in some ways Hobbes, uh, and and I was I was told like you've got to be comfortable with libertarians. It's like ah, oh, but libertarians think some things that I don't think. Like Lord have mercy. Uh, most libertarians think that the state is in no position to be having a national anthem. And I'm so proud <laughs> when we win the rugby and so on. Yeah. So how do we deal with this? And I refreshed at the time uh, uh, Richard Oh no, I'm going to Ep Richard Epstein NYU legal professor like no, Nicholas, no, no relation, I assume, to the, the more infamous. No, not no, 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 don't even, <laughs> not at all. No, dude, relation to you. Epstein's great line is that he has been at NYU for like four decades, and every, and the only class that he like teaches at least one course in every year is Roman Riparian law. <laughs> And I learned a little bit about Roman riparian law when I was going into rural KZN because dudes were so angry about water rights. Water rights, yes. Yeah. You can see you can see men who are like chilled in this hot sunshine. It's hot, 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 and they're very, very calm. <laughs> and no matter what you talk about, you talk about like that time that they were fighting a war here. They're two hills from there. They saw their uncle die. Yeah, maybe they get a little bit sad. Then I talk about how the government took over this farm and it used to have uh, 2,000 employees. Now there's no employees. It's a little bit sad, but it's still calm. Yeah. Then you talk about water rights. <laughs> People, water rights are so deep. Yes. And, and he totally, totally gets it. He's like, if you understand Roman law about water, and these are the guys who built the aqueduct. Then you can understand so much of civilization today. And he was a born libertarian. He's like, like he's, he says when he gets the most afraid, he becomes when, he, when he's at his most cowardly, he becomes a bit of a libertarian, because the the only true principle to hold on to is that you know the in, the kernel of society is the individual agent, and that is that is an axiom that we have to go back to when we're uncertain. And in that regard, I agree. But he disagrees with the libertarians on the basis of what contract law looks like and how it becomes different to negotiate one-to-one -one when you have one-to-many. And uh, this is neatly delineated by any network, whether it's internet or water or roads 
you you find that the game theory of it has been neatly delineated you find that the, the ancients and the medievals like everyone find their own language to describe it we happen to have the best because it's quantifiably analyzable you find that you need a different format for establishing the background conditions to negotiating a contract and that's a stable so, state that has various powers including a moral yeah, police power if I, if I can if I can speak in defense of libertarians to a certain degree I think a lot of libertarians and I think of people like say Hayek or, or um, you know Milton Friedman would, would no I will I will claim that Milton Friedman is not really a libertarian anyway okay I think when you say libertarian you mean the Murray, Murray Rothbardian anarcho-capitalists who are very much of the there should literally be no state it should be completely abolished uh like having anything that looks like a state is already like a you've that was where civilization made the wrong turn <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. like dennis beckett's idea but taken to an internal extreme it's like you right. need to localize politics federalize politics devolve power in elections not just to the point where you're voting in your suburb for israeli foreign politics but your each individual person is their own state. Yeah, like and it gets country. it gets really extreme. That's, you go to the very a, far edge, edges idea. of this anarcho libertarian idea. Um, it's sort of an anarcho capitalist idea. I mean, they, 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 there are some who even say that, like, for children to listen to their parents is like <laughs> you know, <laughs> a step too far yeah, see, because that's lose, subject getting the autonomy. They lose touch with the they that's, lose touch with the fact we are not computers. We are that strand. Computers. Yeah, that strand of, of of libertarianism has become a lot more powerful in the last fifteen years or so. Um, and I think so, it, I think it probably look. I've been to a bunch of libertarian conferences, and I think it dominates now. Um, not necessarily amongst really? the professors. But amongst yeah. the the students, the kids, and maybe they'll go uh, grow. But even even some really um, good friends of us. I mean, uh, I think of Impiaki Lumini. He's an anarcho-capitalist of yeah. the kind of Murray Rothbard school. Yeah, really Avowedly great guy and super sweet, yeah. great guy. Yeah, great guy has a lot of really good ideas for South Africa. Is I think generally on our side on things, but <laughs> he has I think fallen into this trap of, of of being, you know, so against the state that in his perfect world just wouldn't exist so so okay so here's why i vote richard epstein he has a nice model which is very uncomfortable for libertarians for technical reasons which is that if it turns out to be the case and this might not be an ideal case but if it turns out to be the case that in a liberal democracy you have which is to say a democracy with not only the rule of law, but law and order, and the rule of law enshrines protection against majoritarian domination. If in that event, it still turns out to be the case that the state is running an institution, and a classical liberal will assume that the state will be running many institutions in that case. If it turns out the state is running an institution, it should be given the benefit of the good business practice test standard of doubt. And in some ways, that's to say, if the government is doing something and a business would do the similar thing, then it's okay. So if a business is allowed, a private school, for example, like St. Stidians is allowed to say you have to go to chapel, even though we pray to Jesus and you might be Muslim, you still have to go. 
and since Scythians doesn't do this anymore, there's a little multi-religious room on the side, but most people do go to chapel when I was there. Anyway, if they say you have to do that, then the state should be allowed to say you have to do something like that too. And this is not coming from a place of a person who's particularly interested in getting the state to advocate Christianity, which would be the obvious choice in America or Judaism or anything like it. It's just to say that this is the kind of best practice standard. Likewise, if a business is paying for pretty sweet restaurant dinners when its negotiators meet with some other negotiators from clients, then a state-owned enterprise in a similar position should be allowed to do the same thing, and it should be a, face the same scrutiny, which is, has this actually improved things in a cost-benefit analysis that you can somehow quantify down the line? Like, can you at least budget it into your um, uh, morale costs of your staff or something like that? There's a McKinsey will have a better way of putting it in terms of the 21st century. I'm using a 19th century phrase, but whatever. It's this, it's a tricky test to apply because it means that insofar as we give some lenience for businesses to do funny things, we should give some lenience to the state to do some funny things, which seem like right infringing things to do. And if you think businesses should be allowed to mandate their staff to get vaccinated, which I'm inclined to think is a good idea, Especially if they're hospitals, but also more generally. I'm a little bit on edge, but I'm, I think it's generally a good idea because I believe in freedom of association. And I can see what the market benefits would be, both in terms of perception and in terms of health, especially if they take into account previous infection. Then you should allow the state to do the same thing, and then it seems like you've built yourself a route to saying the state should be allowed to vaccinate its staff and it employs 2 million people or so out of 12 million employed. So it's a very significant thing. I think it's a good test, but it's it's interesting. It mainly raises more question marks than answers because it's a way of saying, like, give business, give government the same standards you give a corporation. There is, however, a very, there's two very strict points that come with it. The one is that in a business, any shareholder can sue for anything that goes wrong. And as as the dude, the head of the IRR's campaigns unit, blessing and a curse, uh, I find myself asking myself that question a lot of the time, actually, and talking to a lot of legal experts. Like, if the government's going to pass a law that's going to screw over most people, are we allowed to go to court? That's actually a very hard question to answer. If I'm a shareholder in a business, and Impiyaki is a very good example of this, if the business does anything, he doesn't need any stand. He's got the standing. If he's if he can show that that's going to decrease his shareholder value, then he can take the case to our court. But even if you can show that this is going to make it worse to be South African, if this law gets passed, you can't take it to court. And Epstein points out, and and this is where he goes against a lot of conservative textual originalists like Scalia. He's like, did the standing issue? It should be much easier to try and sue the government. If the government's passing a law that's going to screw you over, you should be able to sue the government. Much as I like Beckett's idea of like everyone getting votes, it's complicated for all the reasons you described. I think people should be able to go to a court of equity and say, 
God damn it, you are screwing me over. And it's complicated to show this. So you bring your representative. I'm going to bring my representative. And I've got 12,000 people behind me. And they're all paying 10 rand. And you know what? That's enough for me to hire a really good representative to pass all these tests. And that makes it very clear and easy to adjudicate in a manner that approaches objectivity that you are being ridiculous. That should be allowed. That's the first thing. If you give them the business allowance, if you treat government like business, you should bloody well be able to sue these buggers that are screwing us up. Secondly, in a business, and Nick, you and I know this, but we don't actually talk about this ever, actually. So here we're getting to where we began, which is like, but if someone in the Institute, we don't do progressive transfers within this, the Institute. Like where we work, progressive transfers means you take from them and you give to them, right? Not because you think it helps for the whole institution to develop, but because you think it's morally right. If someone is like, you know, I just need to go on holiday, so the institute should pay for me to go on holiday, and my department's not making that much money, but your department is, so you should give me the money so that I can go on holiday. Dude, that would not be allowed. It wouldn't have been allowed under France or John or Rona. Like, <laughs> we're all a bunch of mad hatters. We'd all complain about it in our own way. <laughs> Even when it's not happening, we complain about it maybe happening, which is where we won't get into the details. But you know what I'm saying? Transfers, this idea of like the rich transferring to the poor, something like that, just for the sake of morality, it doesn't work in a business. And so Epstein's argument is for something like a flat tax, and I don't go with him all the way here, but I see where he's coming from is that if you have too much devolution of power and you still, but you're coming from a system where there's a lot of redistribution, you're going to get in the position where you're treating business competitors like they should be giving you money just because you deserve it. Not because you're adding value, just because you deserve it morally. And that's wrong for business. That's clearly wrong for business. If, if, if our accountant expenses... 20,000 Rand to some uh, supplier, and the reason given is no value added, but he or she deserves it, then that is not categorized properly as an expense. That's a charitable donation, that's tax deductible, and it's tax deductible precisely because we have a different idea about taxes. And in our idea of, our tax, of taxes, we have some third party effects that we think we're worth taking into consideration. So there's room for it but only if you reclassify it not as an expense. And if you're dealing to yourself, if you're paying your own staff and you're saying this person is being paid this much because of how much value they add, and that person is being paid the same, even though they add no value because we feel like they deserve it, then you've committed an illegal bit of accounting. Like you can't say that in business. And so in that sense, you shouldn't be able to say it in government. And I think that, so let me try and explain just because I've, I've covered like some conceptual ground with some weird examples. My worry is that as it currently happens to be the case in South Africa, 
we have some redistribution from the rest of the poor and that is good because some of it's taken care of third-party effects and be even better if we had education vouchers rather than this useless administration and so on and so forth but if you decentralize power too much too quickly then people would start fighting about like why should Joburg, let alone money going from Santon to Soweto, as Herman Mashaba puts it, and he understands exactly this issue. Why should any money be going from Joburg to rural KZN in terms of improving the police system there that is completely defunct, but if it was better, it would help, or HIV medication or whatever. And I think that that answer is it's 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 not easy to explain why it should be the case whether you're in a federal system or in a national system but if you devolve the power then people would compete for it more in an ugly way well probably but the purpose of a business is to make money and the purpose of the state is to keep the peace and if transferring money to rural KZN helps keep the peace you know in some sort of way mm -hmm. then uh then I think it, I think people will probably come around to it. People already make those arguments about you know Santa not giving money to Sweat or whatever, and you know what? It's a minority view, and I think it pretty much always will be. In other words, most people like that kind of redistribution because they think of it like a business would. They think yeah, this is people, actually good for our own bottom line. Yeah, people, we, people. It does in every single country in the world often establish. People who don't necessarily benefit for, from a welfare state often vote for it. This is particularly true in the US. And so while that question is always contentious and while it should always be debated because you can obviously have an unfair system that punishes you know, successful people for no good reason, um, I think people in general actually are pretty good at finding at least some sort of balance there, even if it's not always the balance I'd like. That like societies, unless they're profoundly messed up, <laughs> and uh, sometimes people societies are, are profoundly messed up, yeah, uh, they they tend to have a pretty good sense of how to balance these two to at least some degree. Uh, so, and in that sense, and in that sense, maybe Epstein doesn't entirely get it right because his thought is within a business you should have almost none of it, and not none of it, but almost none of it. Insofar as is any of it, it's a it's a manager's question. Well, let me put it this way, right? I think you can even. But see in a government, you should have none of it. But like, it seems like maybe in government you should have some of it. I think even in business, you could make an argument for having some of it. So let's say you had an employee who was like just everyone really liked them. They made everyone in the office feel at ease. They were just a positive. They're nice to be presence. around. They're just pleasant to be around. That was completely useless. Right. They can't really do anything. They don't have any particular skills. They just sort of. Oh, God, Nick. They just you, hang I, out. I asked someone at university, why are you getting a, a, a degree in English? We already speaking. I didn't actually say we already speak English. I don't. But she was like, dude, you know what? People say this, and I think it's true. It'll make me nice to be around, it won't make me good at anything. But it's good and, to have someone who's nice to be around. And, it's, it's and not, I was like, I laughed. And then I was like, hold on. It's so good to have someone who's nice to be around because yeah. existing is difficult. Yeah, exactly. Right. The thing is, 
there's every reason to fire this person or to pay them nothing. But if they get removed from the system, <laughs> it might very well fall apart. <laughs> and so actually it does hurt your bottom line to take them out of the equation. Exactly. So yes, they don't add into the traditional narrow definition, but they do still add to the company in some sort of way. Now, it's up to a manager to decide whether that really is worth it. And it's a difficult thing to do. You have to kind of eyeball them in the end. But the point is systems that involve people are very complicated. And having a little bit of, you know, trying to run everything as though it was all a feely, carey, lovey-dovey day, daycare center, or trying to run everything as though we're all like machine parts that need to you know generate x amount of utility or else be destroyed both of those paths are silly and it's only when we get into an academic sense that we start to forget that you need to balance the two right so anyway. so so okay so 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 conclusion then maybe something like it actually is even more reasonable than one thought to think of government like business and say in a business, if it makes sense to pay someone to just be nice to be around, in government, it can make sense to make social transfer costs that are having the equivalent effect. But yeah. if you're failing that test, if you're there's a test, so you can right. pass or fail, and there are various other tests in terms of third party effects, and and that and that the answer to Dennis Becker's question, like how best to devolve or unify power, like. Do you climb up to the UN runs the world or you do you climb down to the infinite regress of anarchism where everyone is their own country? What kind of limiting principle or what kind of principle do you look for to, 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 to find the ideal in between point? Might be in part answered by thinking, well, how does it work for businesses? Let it work similarly for governments and for businesses They've got these allowances. They've got these tests. And it turns out when they compete, you get some mega businesses that stick around forever and you get some mom and pop stores that stick around forever. And and the same, if the same turns out to be the case for politics, that in itself is not inherently a bad thing. In fact, you've set up a framework where that seems fairly reasonable. There will be some big ones and some little ones. And as long as you're letting them compete with each other in the right way then you've got a chance of you've got a chance of just keeping i mean the basic point is to keep the free person not the slave not the slave owner just to keep the free person in the game of politics to keep the free person from feeling that everything is so oppressive or so well taken care of so utopian that they can opt out and just play computer games as we are about to do as we go on holiday like to keep the holiday being the holiday <laughs> and 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 work time including some serious like buy into your society time i i feel like we sound like terrible capitalists coming to the conclusion that like if you think about that question the same way you think about how companies compete maybe it helps but it makes sense to me man i think that the free market offers great Look, experiment uh, evidence on this is on this problem of like taking orders sometimes and sometimes being your own dude at the risk of prolonging our two-hour conversation <laughs> um i do think that honestly like societies have actually done a reasonable job of figuring a lot of these kind of 
ideal and this is why i get annoyed by these sort of some of these academic questions of trying to find the ideals because and this is where my sort of conservative side comes in society's been around for a long time and a lot of ways it's much better than it was a thousand years ago and yet there are very few societies that last anything longer than five minutes where there hasn't been some sort of balance found at some point around some of these issues like for example we think of the Middle Ages as a time in which the lower class was really impoverished, oppressed, and trodden on. And that's true. It was, especially compared to today. And yet there was a social welfare net through the church. Same with ancient Rome, right? The emperor could order anyone executed for any reason, especially by the late imperial period. And yet there was a grain doll that gave out food to people and that sort of stuff. And in fact, that was kind of how the emperor maintained his power. So I, I do think societies are actually pretty good at finding this balance of redistribution, of value add. And often it like can get virus, hijacked. We, we keep yes. randomly downloading the new apps and finding yeah. the ones that... And it's never, it's never like completely stable. So for example, South Africa today is badly run, right? But we also know that it won't be badly run forever. <laughs> Maybe it'll be badly run for the rest of our lives. But there probably will come a point in time in which it reaches uh, an uptick. And so I think I think we should have a little bit more trust in the system <laughs> that human beings as a collective, maybe as individuals, we're all a bit silly, but as a collective, we do sometimes tend to find our way towards the, the solution, imperfect as they may be. Oh, Nick, last last week I finished with like why we should hold hands. <laughs> it's such a trite point. I mean, I've felt so humiliated. I really believe it's important. <laughs> Especially in a time when you can only hold hands with some people. But now you're finishing with like the wisdom of crowds, dude. It's such an old fashioned idea. It's such a good idea, man. We, yeah, this we, is do, we are with such together. aristocratic, aristocratic yeah. sensibilities. And exactly. I still I still think that at the end of the day, people will eventually come to the right conclusion. Dude, let me tell you, I I feel more certain of that now that I am a little bit older. I don't know that much older, but like, dude, I feel how working with other people, working with other people, they find my mistakes and they fix them. The the and the I do what they couldn't do, dude. Working together is pretty great, man. Yeah, tyrants eventually get assassinated. Authoritarian regimes eventually collapse. Uh, and the goal of a public intellectual is not necessarily to save the people from themselves. It's just to hurry them along to the right conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, we can't. We're not excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like we know South Africans will eventually get around to the idea that the ANC is a bit of a problem. And they're already starting to get there. Oh, man, I'm so excited, dude. I put up, We put up a billboard saying racism but is it, not the it, problem. It, and the most common headline... Before and after the elections, which is like the ANC is the problem, not of 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 headline breaking right. news because it's not a breaking news story, but of opinion pieces. Yo, we've already gone down the list. And the people knew this already. It's just all we've been trying to do is hurry them along to what they already know. Which is <laughs> that this doesn't work, and we need to try something different. We then have to convince them not to try something worse. <sighs> Such an interesting problem. Dude, imagining how things can get better is such an interesting problem. 
Anyway, not just, we not really, just we're, in a silly dude, way. We, we must way. end yeah. it now because we are two That's hours me. and 10 minutes. It's the longest ever podcast. I don't know if anyone is still listening. If you are still listening, you're a hero. And I just want you to know that Gabriel's desire to delve into the depths of the philosophical underpinnings of society has been keeping me from my holiday. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we started, we started to be clear. It's been keeping me too. Uh, we started this at midday on a Friday. Or one o'clock, whatever, <laughs> uh, because we wanted to have the chance of ending work early on the last official day of work, especially since <laughs> this is not actually the last day of work. Like I've been told quite categorically. Yeah, and I still have <laughs> stuff to do as well, so it's not completely the last, but it's like sort of formally the last. So imagine anyway. in our imagination. So we recommendations. Like, we clearly like what we do. <laughs> recommendations, Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> so he's dragging on. Um, I I would like to pass on one recommendation uh, <clears throat> that I got on Monday, and I watched this movie. It's called Tick 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 Boom. I think I've heard of it. It's oh, a story what, about the South African unemployment rate, and it's really well made. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> no, it's a it's a play. <laughs> <laughs> it's a play written in New York in the 1980s about someone who who is stuck busting tables, being a waiter, and wants to be a kind of playwright, musical theater writer. And it starts out super cheesy, and it just catches you by the end, and it's a true story. And uh, it's it, it just reminded me Reminded me of a world of people who believe in civilization in a different way. They believe that their work every day is to take advantage of the fact that this is already civilization. Like we are trying so hard. Civilization is a ship and it's sinking and we're like... We've got these little buckets and we're pouring the water over the edge and more water's coming in. And then like a fish comes in, you're like, oh, maybe that fish can plug the hole. Like maybe it's stuck like Winnie the Pooh. This is so fat and corrupt. It's actually going to save us. And Oh, my God, dude. It's such a – it's a relentless worry about other people uh, in terms of basic needs being met. And, and these playwrights are also worrying relentlessly about other people's highest needs being met. They're like, we're in New York, and these people we're writing this stuff for have got everything they could ever want, excepting something interesting. Like, they're just getting such boring repetitions of the same old stuff. Like, can I make something new? Can I make something new to that actually matters? And that'll change things. Maybe they get a little political too. Anyway, it's it's funny it's for someone to the play or the film. So the film was just made during the pandemic, and it's basically a reproduction of the play, and it's got a special resonance. And Stephen Sondheim features, who is possibly the greatest genius I ever had lunch with. Um, he recreated American musical theater from being something lost between the lyrical brilliance of Cole Porter, which was ultimately framed in like quite a technical 
classical musical theater idea and the and the blood and guts of like hollywood his most accessible story is sweeney todd um which is to him as shakespeare is to macbeth and i don't mind comparing them because the first time that the new york shakespearean company performed a non-shakespeare play in the city in the park uh, play in the park uh, thing that they do it was a sondheim it's very good anyway dude sondheim sunday in the park with george into the wild like he he made an amazing bit of musical theater the, the most amazing the most life-changing live performance i ever saw i think it's probably a play of his uh and and i think it's because well it's it's because of various things but he embodied the best of the best in in such a competitive space you know they're, they're in New York City trying to redevelop the world in the 90s. Anyway, this story is not about him. He's just the guy who helps out the guy who's on the verge of giving up and gets a sweet word. And it's true. And this matters because sometime died last week, six days ago. And uh, I strongly recommend it. I also strongly recommend uh, Dennis Beckett. And I hope we can put in both because it's a two-hour podcast uh on on the strong vote uh it's it's an amazing thing because it's so much the opposite of the sometimes stuff i'm talking about it's like particular it's local it's south african he talks about the lady back in the 80s working in this magazine shop as a tea lady who understands politics as well as machiavelli but has never hasn't come close to like a decent classroom almost all her life and and that is the common sense voter that one that has internal contradictions but that's worth trying to re-energize and i think beckett has a good idea about how to do that uh, and i hope we've added something to to that anyway those are my recommendations and with and with that also like a happy a happy little december period we hope to come back to you but uh, take a break um and i would like to recommend a youtube channel called mothlight media uh, i'll put it in the description of the show but mothlight media just talks about evolutionary history and it's really interesting and with that mm, uh, the moth to the flame <laughs> yes uh and with that i'd like to say we hope that you enjoyed if you are still here after all this long rambling and that you have a most excellent holiday and a most wonderful December and uh, January. And uh, we'll see you soon. Keep the flag of liberty flying, people. Grr, grr.